We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1, uh, actually 1 down uh, through 13. Uh, and I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to teach us what he's trying to teach us in this passage, all right? So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and for those of you who don't know, Pentecost uh, is also known as the Festival of Weeks. Uh, it, it is established in Leviticus 23. Uh, it happened 50 days, uh, essentially, after Passover. Uh, it's, it's a festival of harvest. It's where you bring your first fruit. So it's significant that this day of spiritual harvest, where God saves 3,000 souls, lines up with a Jewish holiday that's about first fruits. It's about bringing, bringing uh, to God the harvest. Uh, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Was it wind? Or was it like a mighty rushing wind? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire. Was it fire? As of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. So here are the Jews of dispersion. This is not a, a Gentile event here. This is the Jews from all over the known world have gathered in Jerusalem, uh, obeying this, the, the festival of weeks, bringing their first fruits, bringing their gifts to the temple. Uh, and it says, from every na nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together. So whatever house they were in, we don't know, whatever space it was, but the Spirit's power blew them out into the open, uh, and people heard it and saw this, in, this incredible event, and they, they basically gathered around the disciples. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, those who have converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're drunk. They're filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today humbled by this beautiful story, this beautiful piece of history, the beginning of the church, the beginning of the spirit-filled church, the movement of your missionary spirit who's come into the world to reveal to this world the person of Jesus, your son. And Lord, we pray right now as we look at Pentecost and we know, Lord, that this is a one-time event, but the realities of it are still occurring today. We are still actually experiencing the reverberations 
of this event, for your spirit is still empowering and filling and cleansing and sending out into the world your people to be witnesses until you return again. Lord, I want to pray today that you would open up our hearts and minds, give us a sensitivity to your spirit, but also give us an expectancy. Lord, we believe you want to do more. And Lord, some of us don't believe that, and I pray that you would open up their hearts, help our unbelief, Lord. Move us to be a people that have a vision for the world that you have sent us out into to be witnesses to your goodness, to your love. Lord, fill us with love, for it is only the love of Christ that, compel us and this, that can compel us, and it is the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts. Lord, there may be one baptism, but there are many fillings, and we need to be filled. And so I pray right now that you would have your way uh, in this time together, that Jesus, you would be honored, that we would submit ourselves to the truth of your scriptures that are inspired by your spirit, and that we would be a people that are changed. So speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. Give me a tongue of fire to declare the truth of who you are. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In John chapter 15, Jesus spoke of this event, the promise of the coming of the Spirit. He says, but when the Helper comes, so that is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father and the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness. I want you to notice that order. This is very significant because were the disciples before Pentecost followers of Jesus? Yes, they were. Had Jesus already began to reveal to, to them the truth? They've seen the, his death and resurrection. They heard his teachings. They were even told that he illuminated their minds to understand the scriptures, but they had not yet received the promise of the Holy Spirit. In many ways, uh, they were still relatively individualistic in their approaches. What is the thing that happened when the Spirit came upon this community, this small community of men and women, this 120 that were gathered together? What is it that happened? Two realities happened. One, they went from many people to one body, the birth of the church. The Spirit came upon them and filled them. The same Spirit filled each of them, unifying them to do, secondly, to become the witnesses that Jesus said they would be. That the witness of the truth of Jesus requires the Spirit, and without the Spirit, the church is neither unified nor is it able to communicate the truth of who Christ is. Another thing that I would note from this statement that Jesus points out here is that when the when this helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, notice this very Trinitarian push that the Spirit reveals to us, a Trinitarian God, a, a God who is a community within himself. But notice, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you also will bear witness. So notice the participation that the order is not you're a witness and then you hope that the Spirit shows up, is that the Spirit is a witness and he invites us to be, to be available to him to become conduits, participants in his kingdom purposes. What strikes me about this passage in Pentecost is how quickly it is that we do not give space to the Holy Spirit to be 
the first and foremost witness to the reality of Jesus. We try to go out and witness in our own strength, in our own capacity, in our own intelligence, and we forget that what God is looking for is yielded men and women to the Spirit of God who is the ultimate testimony to the reality of Jesus. Notice it's not dependent upon intellectual capacity, but it is dependent upon spiritual illumination that comes through a total yieldedness, a willingness to be filled. There is one baptism of the Spirit, but there are many fillings. And I think that we need to understand that when we read Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit that comes here is the, is the first time we see people truly Spirit-filled. The Spirit, he says, is with you, but he will be within you. That was the promise that Jesus made. And so what I want us to look at in, in here and what I want us to be thinking about is what does it mean for us at Door of Hope to be a Spirit-filled community? And what does a spirit-filled community actually look like and what does it actually achieve? I feel like I got a glimpse of that in many ways in what I just experienced at Holy Trinity Brompton is that it was a church that was expectant upon, it had an expectancy that the spirit would draw men and women to the person of Jesus. They pray for that daily. They have this way that they pray that I thought was so beautiful. I actually never have done it before. It was a new kind of instruction for me. Is that we, the, the Brits make fun of us American evangelicals. They say that our churches are built upon shuffling attendees. It's really convicting. It's who, who's the hot church in town and then people leave one church to go to that church. And he says what the church needs to be is so dependent upon the Holy Spirit, hands open, ready to receive in a way that the lost are drawn in. If we're not saving the lost, we are not actually fulfilling our mission, but we can't save the lost. But we need to be participants in that work. Notice Jesus chooses sovereignly to utilize broken men and women like you and I to be, be conduits of his spirit. And I want us to be a church that sees, I don't want us to be a church that grows through church shuffling. I don't want to gather 100 uh, a year from, uh, from Imago, and I don't want to give Imago 100, and then Imago gives you know, the well 50, and then the well gives Bridgetown 20. <laughs> what, what is that about? It's like, I'm, oh, Josh may be mad. Uh, Rick, now Rick may be mad. I'll go over and hang out with John Mark. Or this community was more welcoming than that community. What we need to be is a people that come ready to receive from the Spirit, to be a Spirit-filled people that recognize that church, the church should grow, but the growth should be through the lost getting saved. And that was the belief that I had in the early days of Door of Hope. I'm like, if people don't get saved, we won't be a church. That's how you fill a church, is people need to get saved. As the church got filled, then we become a little complacent and I think a little more reliant on our cleverness, on our programs, on our own, on our own intelligence. Uh, we, we've, we've become savvy uh, in functioning as a church, and I think often we do it without actually giving the Spirit the ability to lead. What I want us to be thinking about in terms of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is already within you, and I heard this great illustration while I was in England. It said, it said we don't, when we pray, Holy Spirit, come, it's not that we don't believe that he's not here, it's just that we haven't given him the microphone yet. It's like saying, Brie has a great story. And then I continue with my message without ever giving Brie the opportunity to share her story. She's here, but I haven't given her the opportunity to speak. This is how we often treat the Spirit. 
And I think a spirit-filled life is a yieldedness to the Spirit's leading. Remember when Jesus became spirit-filled at his baptism? It says the Spirit then drove him into the wilderness in Mark. Are we driven by the Spirit or are we still driving? That's really the question, isn't it? So when we look at this passage, look what happens. Look how this this comes down, because we can learn a lot about what it means to be spirit-filled through this, and we also get a beautiful testimony of the birth of the church. It's incredible. But it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I think it's significant that we begin there, is that there was one accord. There was, what have they been doing up to this point? What have they been doing? They were together waiting waiting for the Spirit to come, just as Jesus commanded them, and they did it with expectancy. Jesus said it, and that settled it, and they weren't going to leave until they received it. That was the reality. That's why I posed the question, should Peter have made that decision before, before the Spirit had come about who should, fulfill, who should fill Judas's place? It's hard to say. I do know the only thing Jesus really commanded them to do was to go and wait And when the Spirit would come, they would become empowered from on high to be witnesses to the whole world. So the one thing that they definitely kept is they did not go out and try to witness in their own strength. They waited. And that waiting was done in a unity of spirit. It wasn't one person waiting. It was a community together with great expectancy. Jesus said he's going to send his Spirit. He says that to the church. His spirit comes into our lives when we place our faith in him. There should be a unity and an expectancy in our community and, and, and making room for the Holy Spirit to actually point us to the living Christ, to make room for him. And I think that this is a beautiful, beautiful beginning point because what happens when the day of Pentecost arrived? I love this. It says, and suddenly, and I want you to note that, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't wind, but it was like wind. It was sound. I think this is important because this is the first reality, the first first symbol that's given to us of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3, verse 8, about the Holy Spirit? He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does this symbol of wind represent for us? It was a supernatural event where the sound of wind came in. And this sound, it did what? It filled the room. All of a sudden, we see God's presence is being made manifest in a supernatural way. God was with them. I want you to note that. The Spirit here, God's Spirit, just as Jesus promised, is with them, which is a picture of presence, but I would argue that it's a picture of sovereign presence, for no one knows from which direction the wind blows. There needs to be a yieldedness to this reality. I think that one of the, one of the things that I kind of gathered from this particular text is, is reminded of a, of a passage in Genesis, Genesis chapter uh, 28, verse 16. Remember when Jacob lays his head down on a rock? I don't know why he did that. And he goes to sleep, and he's given a vision of a ladder from heaven. And when he wakes up, uh, and there's angels ascending and descending on the ladder, it's amazing because Jesus himself defines that in, in the beginning of John uh, at the end of chapter 1. He says that, that he himself is that ladder. He actually interprets what 
Jacob saw. But the, I think what's a really, really poignant moment is when Jacob says, the Lord was in this place and what? And I didn't know it. The Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. I think that that statement is very true often for the church, that we live like practical atheists, that we believe in the Lord, but we don't believe that he is actually present. The manifestation here at Pentecost, there are many things about Pentecost that is a one-time event because it's the birth of the church, but the principles are continue to be true. And we need to actually be aware of the presence of Christ. We need to wait with expectancy that he's going to come. And when I say wait, we're not waiting uh, for the spirit to, uh, to save us. We're waiting for it. We're waiting on the spirit. That is that we're giving the spirit space to move in a way that, that the, the manifest presence of the living Christ is made known. This is a powerful, powerful reality. I, I think that, that the wind speaks of presence, sovereign presence. God is no longer in this place, and I didn't know it. God has entered in. We've waited with readiness to receive and he has made his arrival known, the power of his arrival. I, I want to just begin by sharing as we're working through this. This is God's presence with them. But when I was in London on day three, uh, or excuse me, on day two, so it was last Tuesday, uh, Todd Proctor, who is the head of Alpha America, he used to be the executive pastor um, at Rock Harbor down in Orange County, he, uh, he said, hey, you know, part of the reason we've invited you pastors here really is, is for you as well. We want you, well, there's something special about what God is doing here, and we want you to be refreshed as well. And I'm like, I'm happy. Like, I feel like I'm preaching in a way that, that honors Jesus. I love my community. I love my city. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. He goes, like, I want, and, and he, goes, he invited this Englishman up to 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 basically pray for the pastors and said, we basically want to kind of teach you this way of like, what does it look like to pray for the presence uh, of Christ to come in a, really, in a really powerful way? So this Englishman gets up and he, and he was teasing us for being like, we pray, but we don't actually expect God to do anything. And even, he even imitated an English accent or an American accent and really, it was pretty, it was pretty awesome. It's like, Lord, uh, you know, we ask that you do this. We hope so. Your will be done, not... You know, and one of these, like, you should always ask with expectancy. Uh, yes, God is sovereign and the Spirit is sovereign, but He always, there are certain things that we can actually take to the bank. And one of the things that we can always ask for and will receive if we ask with expectancy is for God to give us a revelation of Jesus' love. The Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts to bring forth the love of Christ. And so, this presence, I realized that. I love the church, I love the scriptures, I love Jesus, but when, I, when he started to say, some of you just need to experience the presence of Christ in a tangible way, you need the spirit to make known that God is actually with you, that he is really actually closer to you than you are to your own thoughts. And he goes, and if that's you, you've, you've read the stories of D.L. Moody, the stories of Pascal, the stories of Jonathan Edwards, of where they have these moments where God's presence shows up in a supernatural way, and he lets them know, Jesus is real, I'm real, 
I'm with you. I actually will never leave you nor forsake you. If you would like to have a moment like that to hang your hat on, I just want to invite you to come forward. And then he said, or maybe you, you've lost the sense of God's presence because you experienced bitterness. And he listed off these several things and he said, come forward. I don't know why, but I just like reluctantly, it wasn't even, it was like my body moved and my mind was like, no. And uh, I'm like, I'm from Portland. This is not acceptable. Um, and I just went straight down the middle, right to the front of the stage. And he's like, we're gonna have people lay hands on you and pray that, and he's like, we want you to open up your hands and, and be ready to receive the presence of Christ. And so I'm standing at the front and I thought that someone came up behind me and laid their hand on the back of my head, but the moment, and it was just someone leading worship, and the moment it happened, I just, I, I felt this incredible warmth come over me, and I just felt this, all this tension in my heart and all this weight that I carry that God hasn't asked me to carry in regards to the church and all this heaviness that I've carried over the years in ministry. It was just like, Jesus, like, relax. And this hand on the back of my head, here's the weird thing. There was no hand on the back of my head. I turned around and there was no one behind me. And I was convinced that someone was touching me and, and I just felt this incredible warmth and the, the very, very tangible presence. It wasn't like wind. It was like a touch, but it wasn't a touch. It was this incredible, overwhelming sense that God is in this place, and I actually do know it. And I can't explain to you how overwhelming it is to know that God really loves you. I'm like, I'm a pastor and I forgot that Jesus loves me, and he wants to show up. I believe he wants to show up. I believe that we're just not expecting. So this picture is that God is with them. It's his presence with them. Secondly, we see in this verse, this verse two, I love, or excuse me, in verse three, it says, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Here, not only does God show up to make his presence known, his sovereign presence known, he has come in his time. They were told to wait. They did. They were obedient. God shows up in power, and that power now rests upon them. And it was as like fire. And I think that fire is always a really, we're told that our God is a, is a consuming fire. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think that terrible can be both terrible as in judgment, but it also can be terrible as in holy love uh, that actually overwhelms us, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And fire is not just a picture of, of judgment, but it's also a picture of what? Of purification, of power. And I love this because the disciples, the moment they become aware of God's presence, he actually shares with them, with them that powerful presence, and it comes to rest upon each one of them equally. And I think that this is so beautiful because fire is a, is a picture of power and purification. And when God shows up, when God is in the place and you know it, actually that's when heart work begins to happen. Because as I went forward, the presence of God was followed up with this overwhelming, it was his kindness that led me immediately to repentance. And repentance is a beautiful thing because I thought someone's hand was on my head and it wasn't. And I felt the love of Jesus come over me. And then I became overwhelmed with how I have functioned often in my own strength, 
how I've tried to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. And at that point, God did send someone, this man, uh, his name's Dane. He actually lives in California. I tried to hire him years ago, um, but he was smart and realized that working for me would probably not be healthy for anybody. Uh, and he, he laid his hand on my chest and he could just sense that I was just overwhelmed with something. He goes, what's going on? And then I just said, I just said I'm tired. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I've neglected my first love. And he goes, just say that to Jesus. Just speak it out. And in that moment, that, that, that presence of the Spirit upon me, it was like a purifying fire that just released. It was like this weight kind of came off of me. It was such a powerful reality. A spirit-filled church is a church that is aware of Christ's presence. A spirit-filled church is not a church to continue being, being stuck in the same sinful patterns day after day, but it's a church that becomes free when we realize that that is the love of Christ that leads us to repentance, that Jesus's presence is so beautiful that I don't actually want to, I don't want to lose sight of this, this incredible thing. I'm not going to give myself to the ways of the world that blinds Christ anymore. It's the realization that we actually have the power to overcome. The witness of the disciples that day was that they were set free from their own egos. They were set free from their own misconceptions about Christ. They became empowered by Jesus to just express this reality. They were conduits. The Spirit cleansed them and empowered them. His presence was with them. Now it was upon them. Incredible. We may not see tongues of fire float overheads, although I do think that would be really epic. And I feel like that would be a pretty compelling testimony. <laughs> I wish I could walk through port and they're like, does that guy have a strange flame above his head? You know, you, you ever see the, those old, those old like early, like first few century paintings, the patristic fathers, and they'll, they'll just have little flames above their heads? I think that would be cool. I would accept it. Who would need hats? <laughs> like, have you, you seen those people at Door of Hope? They have burning heads. <laughs> it's amazing. But I love this. The Spirit is with them. The Spirit is upon them. And then look what happens. I think that this is so, so beautiful. It says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what is this? Here we have now the Spirit's presence is around them. It's with them. It comes upon them, and now that first group of people that experience the very promise of Jesus, the Spirit was always in the world working. The Spirit even empowered individuals to be witnesses and prophets. But now the Spirit is doing something that we've only up to this point seen in Jesus himself. We see the Spirit-filled life where human beings become literally the temple of God, where the Spirit of God is now within them. He is with them, he is upon them, and now he is within them. And it's, I love this, you have sound, you have sight, and you have speech. And I think what's so profound about this is that tongues, I think, uh, do many of us experience a point where all of a sudden you're able to just communicate in a foreign language that you didn't know, or you speak in a way that someone who speaks a foreign language hears it in their own tongue, however that this miracle worked, we don't know. But I think that there's something that we can gather from this that's essential to the spirit-filled life. It's a picture of unction. It's a, and that's an old church word, kind of a revivalist word, is that 
that idea of that there is an authority, there's a presence upon what is being spoken. I think it's interesting that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, and the first thing that he loosens is their tongues. Their life has become purified. They become vehicles of light. Fire is upon them. They have illuminated lives, but the outcome of an illuminated life, one who has been purified, one who has been empowered, is that you speak. Speech is one of the most beautiful gifts of human existence. It's how we connect with one another. It's how we know one another. And I think that that's one of the things I was saying is that we often do the speaking and we don't let the Spirit speak. But now, notice the Spirit, it says, gave them utterance. They didn't give themselves that ability. What does it say? It says, to speak other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were just so yielded to the Spirit filling them that the Spirit, they weren't even fully, it's like they were, they were participating, but as they were participating, the Spirit was empowering, pushing forward the message of Jesus, able to utilize them literally as conduits. The surrendered life leads to the Spirit-filled life, and that Spirit-filled life comes with unction. And what is that unction? It's not just simply the ability to proclaim who Jesus is, but they also, it's, it's praise-filled unction. It's they, were, they began to worship. And that remember Jesus said, the Father is looking for true worshipers, and worshipers will worship in what? In spirit and in truth. What were they filled with? When to become filled, what were they filled with? I think it's safe to say that as they became the vessels of Christ, they were filled with the presence of Jesus. So literally, the center of their being, their soul now, was literally a home. I will love him, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home within him. That was the promise. If you keep my commandments, if you keep my commandments, this is what we'll do. And what was the commandment? Wait. Wait until I come. They weren't called to do anything in their own ability. Jesus gave them one simple command, they kept it, and he came. And I think that this is powerful because the presence of Christ within us is there is that the, for the soul, it's the presence of Jesus actually dwelling within us. It gives us a foundation of being. But more than that, there, what happens? The unction is praise. They're overwhelmed with God's presence. They become literally a conduit in which it flows out of them. And, it, and I think that what are we told in, in Romans chapter 8? That the, Spirit of, that the Spirit of God we poured, the love of God we poured out in our hearts by, by the Holy Spirit. That it, it actually impacts their hearts. They feel the love of Christ and they become conduits of that love. I realize that there will never be an evangelistic thrust for Door of Hope if we don't first and foremost believe that Jesus is with me, that he is within me, and that he loves me. It is the love of Christ that compels us. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we talk to people who are lost, do we look at them as ones who are made in the image of God and who God loves deeply? We won't look at them that way if we don't believe that he loves us deeply. And I think that this is what the spirit-filled life is, is it's awareness that I am loved. I am the beloved. Jesus loves me. His presence, his love, and ultimately his life actually is what comes with being spirit-filled, that we actually are able to reflect him in our thoughts, in our words, as well as in our deeds. So in these three verses, we see God with them, we see God upon them, we see God in them. And what is the outcome of that? 
Now we see the thrust of the whole book of Acts is that the Spirit is a missionary spirit who brings the world to an awareness of Jesus, and he does it through the church. So this is the continued work of Jesus. Look what happens, because now we see the Spirit working through them. Look what, look what happens in verse, in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Literally, the Spirit-filled life brings them into a place where now the Spirit fills them and now is working through them. And, the, and they are communicating through praise and through proclamation the works of God. Isn't that what it says? They were, they were saying, how is, it, how is this happening? They were amazed and astonishing. Are not all these who are speaking Gala, uh, Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in his own native, uh, each of us in his own native language? And then what does he say? Telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And the outcome was that they were amazed and perplexed. We know the continuation of the story because Peter gets up and actually preaches this spirit-filled message, and 3,000 people are saved that day. It says they were cut to the heart, convicted by the reality. The Spirit's presence is made manifest. It comes upon them in power and fills them with the very presence, the very heart, the very works of Jesus. And it actually then works through them and immediately begins to draw the lost to the living Christ. And I think what's so powerful about this is that the works of God, I think what they were proclaiming is that Jesus is the Messiah. And why would the Jews who are hearing the works of God being proclaimed in their own, in their own tongue, why were, they, why were they amazed? Why were they perplexed? The reason that they were perplexed is because they were declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. They were praising God for sending his son and this is why I believe what, why some of them thought they were drunk. I, I personally, I, I think that we're reading too much between the lines, too much speculation if it, we think that the, that the manifestation of the Spirit was them rolling around on the grounds or doing things that were so crazy that they're like, they were drunk. Why did they think they were drunk? Because the message they were giving was crazy. From a Jewish mindset, this carpenter from Nazareth is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. That was insanity. And, and we're told that the gospel, when it's truly presented, doesn't leave people lukewarm. It divides. When the gospel's preached with boldness and in power, it says to some, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. People think that we're crazy for loving Jesus. People are turned off when Jesus is really proclaimed, but many people are also drawn. And I think that we need to recognize what's so powerful about this passage is that the results are not dependent upon our persuasiveness, but upon the, upon the Spirit's drawing and the Spirit's convicting. What you and I need to be are conduits. They aren't called to be lawyers. They were called to be witnesses. They were witnesses to the reality of Jesus. And here we see the beginning of the church being birthed. We see the missionary purpose of the Spirit working through these people, that God doesn't fill us with his Spirit just to satisfy us. In fact, I, I had one pastor say to me, he's like, Josh, it's just so exciting to see what God has done through Door of Hope following you from a distance over the years. And he's like, and I believe he has so much more for you and for your community. But I just want you to know, it's not... He's not doing it 
for you. He's doing it for the church. He wants to utilize you and your community to bless the church, to be a conduit of the kingdom, to expand into a city like Portland the good news of the gospel. So I want to actually do something different today. If you notice, there's no communion out today. I've never in all of Door of Hope's history had a service without communion. But I actually believe that God wants to do more for our church, that there has been in my heart this nagging sense that we live in a city that is the most self-aware, the most uncomfortable uh, with things that are uncomfortable. And I think that we have continued to be comfortable being uncomfortable, which allows us to continue to be cynical, to be critical of the church, to be critical of God's ability to even utilize us. We come to church week after week, but nothing actually changes. Some of you continue to struggle with the same sin day in and day out with no victory. Many of you are not experiencing the very presence of Christ. You come to this church for various reasons. Hope, and I believe that the reason you're here is because you want to experience Jesus, but maybe you haven't done that yet. And I just, I was sharing last night, this was so powerful. I shared with my, my wife uh, and, and daughter, um, Hattie was sitting on the couch, and Hattie's 11 years old, about to turn 12, and we're sitting there on the couch, and I said, I want to share with you guys like what happened to me uh, on this trip. And I, and I began to share with them the, the, the story that I just shared with you about just feeling the present. I didn't tell you the close of the story. So the Portland self-consciousness got me in the end because as I began to become overwhelmed with emotion and people were praying for me, I felt like I couldn't breathe. And all of a sudden, I became horribly aware of all the people around me. And I just beelined out of the room. I ran down into the bathroom, <laughs> closed myself in a stall, and then sobbed for 10 minutes. Now, I, haven't, I actually don't think I've cried in a year. Like, I don't remember the last time I've cried. And, and I was sharing this whole story with Darcy and Hattie last night, and I got choked up while I was explaining to them, like, I just, I needed so desperately to know that God loves me in a tangible way, in a supernatural way. And I, and I couldn't get it out. And, and then I got choked up, and then, and then Darcy goes, honey, are, are you crying? And I'm like, uh, and I was just like, I'm like jet lagged. I just like literally, I'm like, it was like I was choking on my own, my own emotion. And, uh, and then I just, just tears started streaming down my face. And I look over and little Hattie is just like, first of all, Hattie is rarely silent for long. And Hattie was totally quiet. She's just like watching me from the corner that we have a sectional. She was sitting next to me and I was looking at Darcy and I look over at little Hattie and she, her face is red, and she just says to me, she goes, I've never seen you cry, ever. And she goes, it's so, she's like, I just feel so overwhelmed, and she just ran over to me and wrapped her arms around me and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and she goes, I feel like I've seen you for the first time. Do I love my daughter well? Of course. Do I do I care for her? Do I talk to her about Jesus? Do I live as a, as a man who loves his wife and loves his church? Of course. But there is a guardedness, a, a, a lack of empathy, a protectiveness that's come through the years. I, to be honest with you, times where I've been hurt 
in the church, leading, getting emails, having staff frustrated, because I'm a frustrating person. Uh, but over time, we become more and more guarded. When we get hurt, it's easy to stop yielding to the Spirit. It's easy to, to create those protective ways of, to protect ourselves because it, it's, it's, it's dangerous to feel too much, isn't it? And we're taught not to trust our feelings as well. But Jesus, it says that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our heart. What about that statement doesn't speak of feelings? <laughs> if you can't feel the love of God, then how would you know if it's poured out in your heart? And I realized that I had become guarded and it even was playing out in how I care for my family. I love, so whenever things get a little emotional or like on the verge of getting like maybe a little too sensitive, what my MO is make a joke. Like that's how I protect myself from like, we don't want to get too deep right now. That's like, that's a little too, there's a, there's a, I tend to live in a world of lightness and I use sarcasm to escape uh, having to address real feelings. But when tears come from the foundation of Jesus, it's beautiful. And I think that many of you are probably like me where it's just like we just become closed off and cold to the movement of the Spirit. And today I just woke up and I, I, I just, I'm like, I don't want to use my iPad. I just want to use my Bible. I'm going to, maybe I'm jet lagged and just being careless. <laughs> but I just feel like what we need right now as a church is to actually invite the Spirit to take the center stage so that Jesus would be known in our lives.